0: Well, we're already short on time, so let's get going. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 and through 23. Last week, we looked at verses 13 and 14 uh, and and saw Jesus commanding those who were listening to enter by the narrow gate, enter into the kingdom uh, by the narrow gate, which is through him, through faith in him alone. There is only one way to the Father, and that is through Jesus. There is another way, a broad way, which leads to death and leads to destruction. And Jesus continues in verses 15 through 23 of this same chapter to describe to us that even when it comes to the kingdom of heaven, when it comes to the matter of knowing who is in and who is out, uh, on this side of eternity, there are those who, who are not and will not be as they seem. There are those in this world who claim to be in the kingdom, claim to be followers of Jesus, who in fact are not. And from Jesus' words in these verses we will find two categories of such pretenders. Let's turn to God, to to the text of Scripture, to God's Word. Matthew 7, beginning in verse 15, this is what Jesus says. Beware the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit and the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The title of the sermon today is Kingdom Pretenders. And here in these verses that we see two of such uh, kinds of pretenders. First, there are in verses 15 through 20, what I have called the deceivers. That word deceiver carries with it all kinds of connotations, right? We might choose to use any of a number of other appropriate words here. Liar, fraud, con artist. There are just such people who claim to be in the kingdom of heaven, in Christ's kingdom, who do not actually have kingdom interests at heart. In fact, they are anything but loyal to the king and anything but rightful citizens of his kingdom. And as such, they are a threat to the kingdom and to kingdom citizens. Thankfully, Jesus helps us to answer two very important questions regarding these uh, deceptive pretenders. First, Jesus helps us to answer the question, who are they? We find here in answer to this question that they are at heart malicious pretenders. They are malicious pretenders. Jesus calls them pseudo-prophets or false prophets. And so while they appear to be one thing externally, that is prophets of the Lord, bringers of his word, messengers of the king, in fact, they are something else altogether inside. Jesus tells us that they are wolves disguised as sheep here in verse 15. And you don't have to be a professional shepherd to see the kind of picture that Jesus is painting here, right? It's a dangerous one. Wolves eat sheep. For those of you who aren't shepherds and don't know what wolves do, wolves eat sheep. Wolves, being predators, are opportunists. They go for the easy kill. They hunt after the small and the sickly, the injured, the straggler. These pseudo prophets, these false teachers, are not your average wolf disguised as one of the flock. No, Jesus says further that inwardly they are ravenous wolves. They are wolves with a voracious appetite, and as the picture portrays, they are wickedly violent in the way that they go about doing their work. These wolves are looking to destroy and to devour the flock. And so Jesus rightly commands us to be on guard, to beware, to be watchful for these imposters, specifically because of the harm they can do to the flock. The goal of the wolf is to get himself some dinner. And the goal of the false prophet is also to get fed, although in a different way. How is it that false prophets feed themselves Most often it's through the feeding of ego and of status. The false prophet will enter the flock under the auspices, under the pretense of being a follower of Christ, but who very quickly will begin to teach and to lead the flock in directions that are opposed to the gospel. By teaching doctrine that's just a little bit false, they're able to deceive believers and non-believers into buying into an entirely unchristian doctrine and system of faith. Very often the end goal of these persons is to acquire what would be a dedicated following of people who will support the work of these false teachers with their time and their energy and most certainly, and you better believe it, their money. So then when the pretender has finished his pretending, what is left in his wake are a swarm, are a a swath of disillusioned, misguided, disappointed, and spiritually and financially destitute people. See the danger of the false prophet church, the false teacher. See here the destructive effects of such a kingdom pretender. That Jesus says that they come as wolves in sheep's clothing tells us however that they they are not always known or immediately recognizable. Indeed, if a wolf just blithely walked up to a flock of sheep... The sheep would instantly scatter. Seeing the threat and knowing the predator, they would would flee. They would run in all sorts of different directions. And so then for the wolf to achieve his end, for the wolf to get his dinner, he has to use stealth and cunning. He must put on a disguise to first gain the trust of the sheep. Knowing the potential for false prophets to sneak in among the sheep, we are right to ask then, how can we know them? Who are they? Jesus asks and answers that question. How can we know them? And he's good to answer this question for us as well. Jesus says that the way to discern the false prophet is by observing their actions and their manner of life. Christ uses this phrase in verses 16 and 20. He says, you shall know them by their fruit. He uses this phrase twice for emphasis to show that it is the conduct and the outworking of a person's life that enable us to discern their character, to discern their intent. In between these parallel statements in verses 16 and verse 20, there's an illustration from agriculture to explain what Jesus means. He asks in verse 16 a question that we all know the answer to, a rhetorical question. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? Are figs gathered from thistles? We know, of course, that the answer is no. You don't get grapes from thorn bushes. You don't gather figs from thistles. Thorn bushes make thorns and thistles grow prickly, pokey, painful things. And in the same way, we find that in verses 17 and 18, that a good tree bears good fruit and a rotten tree, a diseased tree, bears diseased fruit and never the other way around. A tree may appear healthy, but if after several years it never produces fruit, then it's not a healthy tree. We have an apricot tree in our backyard right now that in the middle of the summer has no evidence that it is going to produce any apricots for us. But it's full of leaves and it's growing like mad. And I'm not sure that it's really a healthy tree. Likewise, a diseased tree may bear fruit, but it certainly isn't the kind of fruit you would want to eat. In the same way, the true believer and the true prophet or teacher of the kingdom will produce good spiritual fruit. ...that is fitting and complementary to Jesus our King and to his kingdom... What kind of fruit? Well, we can turn just briefly to Galatians five twenty two and 23, which uh, thanks to a wonderful kid song I have memorized, right? The fruit of the Spirit, Paul says in Galatians is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is the fruit of the Holy Spirit in us through the power of Christ. That is what we should, that's the fruit that we develop in our life. Those things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is not a banana. Um, that's the song. I'm not going to sing it on the flip side of that. Oh, yeah, we don't have time. I had another statement I had to make on the flip side of that. A false prophet, a malicious pretender will produce bad spiritual fruit. But then it is uh, but then it is only by their fruit, only by the results of their living that we can know them. What's more? they are not true or sincere believers and thus they are not kingdom citizens we should we we would say that they have twisted and used the gospel to their destruction they are lost they are unsaved they are destined for hell just as a diseased tree Jesus says is destined for the fireplace so also is the false prophet destined to eternal destruction what is clear here is that we cannot immediately know the hearts of men and women who claim to be citizens of the kingdom we can't know that immediately You can't look at someone and immediately know that they are a true believer or they are a false prophet or they are a false convert or they are a true convert. You you can't know that at first glance. And so to discern someone's heart, we we have to rely upon the observation of their lives and the outcome of their works. The outcome of their works will always be evident, Jesus tells us. Unlike false converts or people who say they're believers, but they aren't. These false prophets are intentional deceivers. And they, like the wolves that they are, will act on their impulses when the timing is best for them, and they will undoubtedly leave only destruction and disappointment and despair in their wake. Here we should be grateful for God's word and to church history and modern history, uh, which together show us clear examples of what these false teachers look like and the kinds of things that they teach that ultimately will lead others astray. We can go back all the way to the New Testament and see examples of these false teachers, these false prophets. In the book of Galatians, we are introduced to these Judaizers, these uh, Jewish believers in Jesus, so to speak, who say that the only way for a Gentile, for a non-Jew to rightly be a Christian, he must also be uh, circumcised in the manner of the law of Moses. To which Paul says, no, that's absolutely not true. It's not Jesus plus circumcision that saves you. It's just Jesus which Paul says Jesus plus anything equals nothing, but Jesus plus nothing equals everything, right? And we can go to First John and we can read in the letter of First John uh, uh, the, the apostle there. Addressing another sort of uh, confusion or false teaching in the church, which most scholars believe is an early form of Gnosticism, which is based on the Greek word, uh, which means to know. And the Gnostics believed that in order to be saved, you had to have some sort of special, mystical, spiritual knowledge that was not readily available in God's word. You had to have some sort of mystical experience with God in order to be saved. To which John says, no, absolutely not. We have seen Christ. We have observed Christ. We have touched him with our hands. We watched him die. We saw him resurrected. It is only in Christ that you can be saved. And praise God, he can be known. In church history, in the the early centuries of the church... Uh, around the early 300s, we see other examples of this such thing. And for those of you who uh, are church history buffs, uh, I don't have enough time to spend uh, talking about these early heresies and early false teachings, although I really, really want to. Um, but one of the first to arise uh, during the, the, uh, the, the time in which uh, Christianity began to flourish in the Roman Empire uh, was the, the result, the, was the fruit of a presbyter, an elder of the church in Alexandria named Arius, Perhaps you've heard of Arianism, one of the earliest controversies and heresies in the early church. Arius taught that Jesus, the Son of God, was not co-eternal and co-equal with God the Father, but that he was a created being, and as a created being was not fully divine. Very quickly, the church fathers around the Roman Empire got together to decry this heresy. To say, no, absolutely not. We read in the Gospel of John that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. That all things that we see have been created through the Word, who is Christ. That Christ is not created, but has always existed, coequal and co-eternal with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. He was followed by a, another man named Apollinarius, you all will want to go name your sons that, and uh, and Apollinarius taught uh, that uh, in Christ were two uh, two natures, a human nature and a, and a and a divine nature. But the human nature uh, was sort of subservient or secondary to the divine nature. That the human body that Jesus had was kind of like a robot controlled by a divine mind inside of Jesus's head. And the church again quickly got together and said, "No, that's not the case. In Christ, we have." God taking on flesh. He is fully God and fully man. He is 100% God and 100% man. And I know that that doesn't make sense because that's 200%, but that's what scripture teaches, right? It's called the hypostatic union. And, uh, and a Christian rapper named Shy Lin, who I really like. I don't care if you don't like rap, that's fine. Whatever. But Shy Lin, who's a, who's a great Christian hip hop artist has actually written a rap song called the hypostatic union. It's on an album called, um, lyrical theology, and I love it. So go on Spotify, listen to Shylin; It's good stuff. It's good. If you like rap and you like theology, you'll like Shylin. okay? But he even raps about the hypostatic union. So even there in, in modern day, uh, the importance of teaching right doctrine, even through hip-hop, hip-hop music, praise God, okay? So in the New Testament, we have examples of false teachers, of, of uh, false uh, prophets who are trying to lead other people astray. In church history, we have uh, these two early examples of Arius and Arius, and uh And I wish we could go into more, uh, but we don't have time. We also have modern examples of such false teachers. One very, very popularly and, and sort of subtly so uh, is that of uh, the, the teaching, the theology called modalism, which is that there is one God who... Uh, does not exist in three co-equal, co-eternal persons, but one God who reveals himself in three different ways. There's one God who reveals himself as father sometimes, who reveals himself as the son sometimes, and who, when convenient or appropriate, reveals himself as the spirit And this was a a heresy, this is a false teaching that was popularized in the novel The Shack not too many years ago. Uh, I read it, probably many of you read it, many people were inspired by it, uh, it, but it's wrong, right? Its depiction of God is heretical. There is one God who exists in three persons, co-equal and co-eternal, co-equal in majesty and in glory all together. God is the Father, God is the Son, God is the Holy Spirit. But the Father is not the Son, is not, uh, is not the Holy Spirit, is not the Father, right? In that, that sort of triangular way, okay? This is a, a doctrine, the doctrine of the Trinity that St. Patrick fought to preserve, even uh, amongst the Celts in Ireland to whom he was ministering in his missionary days. There's another false teaching, another uh, form of false prophecy alive and well in the world today, in America, and, in, and especially in uh, third world countries around the globe, and that is that of the prosperity gospel. And we talk about this a lot, and it might seem like we're piling on to those prosperity gospel preachers, but it's not piling on when what they are doing is so destructive to the hearts and souls of those that they're leading. We do well to call out false preachers, false teachers where they are and to call them what they are. Those who say that if you are not rich, if you are not healthy, if you are not wealthy and, and have everything that you want, that you just don't have enough faith or that you just haven't get, given God enough permission to do those things in your life. Those people are liars from the pits of hell and I'll, I'll make no bones about it. There is one gospel, which is that salvation is only through Jesus Christ and faith in him who died on the cross and was raised again uh, for died on the cross for our sins, was raised again from the dead, that all who believe in him would have eternal life. And then throughout the rest of scripture, and in, in, especially in the New Testament, we see that those who are saved in Christ are saved to eternal life and to eternal glory and not necessarily to temporary glory and ease and contentment in this life, but that there is a greater salvation that awaits us. The Judaizers, the Gnostics, the Arianists, the Apollinarius, the Modalists, the prosperity gospel preachers, all false teachers that we've seen throughout history and see even today, knowing that the goal of the false teacher then is often to distort the gospel. Not to preach a whole new gospel, but one that's just slightly different, or with an, an undue emphasis on a tertiary point of Scripture. Their goal is to distort the gospel, to make false doctrine, to seem sound, to profit personally, especially amongst the prosperity gospel preachers who are fleecing God's people around the world. We are right to be on the lookout then for these. So then... We ask the question and want to answer it. What do we look for? If we know that false teachers are out there, we know that false teachers are harmful, we know that they are going to destroy the church and those that believe in them, what should we look for? How are we to be aware? How are we to be on alert for these people? First, look for teaching that sounds suspect. When you hear preachers, when you hear teachers, when you hear those that... And I include myself in this, okay? Right? So you should be evaluating me on a regular basis, Listen for things that sound like they may be true or sound true, but are said in strange or unfamiliar language. Like, that sounds true, but I've never heard it that way before. I'm not really, you know, kind of leaves you scratching your head a little bit as to what they're really saying. Maybe they're using the same vocabulary, you know, Jesus, Savior, Christ, Son of God. But in the description of those things, you, you, you begin to, to, to kind of uh, suss out that, that, what is, that what they're talking about is not the same thing that you're talking about. If it sounds kind of funky, if it sounds kind of weird, right, antennas go up, red flags go up and ask questions and get to the heart of what it is that they're saying. In order to do that, I I would suggest looking for two things in particular. And not just these two, but these are two good places to start. When you hear teaching that sounds suspect, follow up in conversation with those people or by doing your research in order to discern specifically their doctrine of Christ and their doctrine of salvation. Who do they say that Jesus is and how do they say men must be saved? Okay, because in that, in the details of those two things, very, very quickly, you will begin to see whether they are true gospel preachers, gospel teachers, or whether they are heretics, false prophets, those who are seeking to destroy the flock of God. Secondly, how do we, what do we look for? We look for discord and dissension surrounding such a person. This is out of order. I'm sorry. This is number three, but we're going to do it number two. Okay. Discord and dissension surrounding such a person. When somebody comes into the into the flock that looks a little bit suspect, that's teaching some strange things. Uh, ask yourself and ask of this person: Does this person have a history of conflict or a history of leaving churches over issues of teaching? Is there a pattern of this person going to a church and, and, and likely a church of like faith and order, right? So does this person have a, a history of leaving conservative evangelical churches over issues of teaching? Churches through whom, uh, to whom we have no conflict in teaching. Are they leaving other Baptist churches over, over what they say is false teaching? And there's just this pattern of it. And everywhere that they go, there's... there's uh, uh, everywhere they go, there's some sort of problem with what's being taught or what's being preached. It's not exactly what they think the gospel is when, um, when in fact the, the church that they're at or the church that they've left have no issues with the gospel whatsoever. Look for when they show up into a body, a new person that shows up randomly. Randomly. If a person shows up next week and, and all of a sudden there is immediate discord, dissension, questioning uh, of this person, of their intents. Uh, if there's immediately like a faction of the church that is following this person and is at conflict with another faction of the church, antennas go up, red flags go up. Right? If we are all united in the spirit of Christ, then one person coming in ought not cause so much dissension so quickly. And so if they do, be on guard, be aware Thirdly, patterns of selfish behavior. This is actually secondly on your outline, but it's thirdly in mine. Patterns of selfish behavior. Persons who come in from seemingly nowhere and very quickly gain a devoted following, very quickly want to design and create ministries out of nothing that revolve all around them and depend only upon them. Right? Watch out for those. probably a laundry list of things that I could say to look out for, but I think that these are the three that are most important. Look for teaching that sounds suspect, discord and dissension surrounding this person, patterns of selfish behavior among especially new people and even people who have been around for a while. Sometimes wolves will take their time to make themselves known. So what does this mean for us today? Well, We've already gotten to very practical aspects, but but if I could sum it up this way, I'd say it this way. First, When it comes to deceivers, to those who are entering into the flock to deceive God's people, first, know God's word. Be in God's word. Know it and use it to be watchful of wolves. I've used the, the example, the illustration many times of when uh, I worked a lot in retail as a kid in high school and in, in, in college and did a lot of cash handling, and, uh, and you always want to be on guard against counterfeit bills. Usually they're very large, um, but what you do to learn a counterfeit or learn to spot a counterfeit is not to study all the various forms of counterfeiting, right, but to know the real thing, to know the, the standard uh, that a $100 bill is supposed to fulfill for it to be authentic, right? You look for the kind of paper that it's made of and the the coloring on the bill and, and other things that are placed within it. You know the real thing, and in knowing the real thing, you're able to spot the fake thing. So know God's word and use it as your primary tool to be watchful of wolves. Then, when they are known, when a wolf makes himself or herself apparent in the flock, immediately have nothing to do with them. You might say, well, pastor, that's not very gracious, Well, neither is their desire to come in and devour the flock of God. Have nothing to do with them. When they show themselves their true nature, which is wolves, which is a predator, which is that which which seeks to to destroy the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace among the body, immediately when they are known, have nothing to do with them. Because they want nothing to do with the gospel. But second, among these types of pretenders, Jesus describes, there are those that I've called the self-deceived. In verses 21 through 23, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Do we not cast out demons in your name? Do we not do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Many scholars, students of the Bible, commentators, see verses 21 and, and through 23 as an extension of verses 15 through 20. That is, they, they think it is further describing the false teachers and what will happen to them on the Day of Judgment. And while I agree that there are aspects of the two kinds of pretenders that overlap here, I do see a distinction in the kind of pretender that Jesus is describing. The self-deceived, or we might call the false convert, in contrast to the false prophet genuinely thinks he's a citizen of Christ's kingdom, when in fact he has missed the kingdom altogether. In order to understand what the self-deceived person looks like, let us turn to uh, the text and to what Jesus says here. Now, let me say at this point, uh, not all those who are self-deceived are deceivers, but I would say that all those who are deceivers are self-deceived. Does that make sense? It's like a not, not all rectangles are squares, but all squares are rectangles, right? So not all... Now, now you're just more confused. Not all, not all who are self-deceived are deceivers. Not all those who are, who are thinking wrongly uh, or understanding salvation wrongly are out to destroy the flock of God. But all of those who are out to destroy the flock of God do understand their place in the kingdom wrongly, okay? So first, when it comes to being a part of the kingdom, these who are self-deceived, we find in verse 21, are seeking to enter the wrong way. They want to enter the kingdom through the wrong door. The assumption of the self-deceived person here is that simply by addressing Jesus as Lord, that they'll gain entrance into the kingdom. But Jesus is explicit when he says that there must be more than just saying, Lord, Lord, to enter into the kingdom. In fact, that which is required is to do the will of the Father, Jesus says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven is doing the will of the Father that merits entry into the kingdom. This might at first sound to you like Jesus is saying there are things that we need to do, laws that we need to follow, God's mind which must be read in order for us to enter the kingdom. It is true that this phrase, the will of my father, is used throughout the gospel of Matthew almost always with an emphasis upon the commands of the father. For Matthew, who was a Jew, writing to Jews, this might would seem to have the impact of obedience to the law of Moses in the Old Testament. But with the coming of Christ, we know that the law has been fulfilled. Jesus himself says as much, and Jesus proves himself greater even than the law. So thus it is not obedience to the law that is the will of the Father for us, but it's obedience to Christ which is required. Jesus gives us a really great description of what the Father's will. Not even description, just explanation. This is what the the uh, the will of the Father is. In John 6, 38 and 40, he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. He's speaking about the security of the believer, those that are uh, saved, right? And, And their eventual resurrection. Verse 40. For this is the will of my father, Jesus says, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So then we see. In Jesus' own words, that it's the will, that is the will of the Father, it is God's will for Christ to give his life to save sinful humankind who are incapable of fulfilling the law. And it is simultaneously the Father's will for sinful men to look on Christ, to believe in him, and to be saved. So when Jesus says that what is required to enter into the kingdom is to do the will of the Father, he's reiterating what he's already said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate. The narrow gate of faith in Christ, that is how the kingdom of heaven is entered. But the self-deceived person, the false convert, assumes that by merely professing to be a Christian, by merely having a respect for God and accepting the historical facts of Christianity, and by living generally moral lives, can they enter the kingdom? Their lives are marked by religious dedication and the things of Christianity, but with little devotion, little obedience, little loyalty to Christ himself. As a result of their attempt to enter the kingdom the wrong way, we see that what Jesus says of them, that rather than saving them, their religion ultimately condemns them. So the self-deceived, these so-called Christians, believe that they can enter into heaven on the merits of their religiousness. Because of their religiosity, because of their preaching, because of their teaching, because of their casting out of demons and mighty works all done in the name of Jesus. Jesus, we did all these things in your name. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that their view of grace is a view of grace that's contrary to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, not by works, so that no man can boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says that salvation is earned Uh, Theirs is a view of grace, excuse me, that says salvation is earned by doing things for Jesus, not entrusting in all that Jesus has done for us. Yes, true believers are to do the kinds of good works described here, but only as a result of receiving salvation and being transformed at this spiritual level. Right? Certainly, we see the the, the the very things that are done here, preaching and casting out demons and mighty works done. We see these things done and practiced by the apostles in the book of Acts, throughout the book of Acts. But the self-deceived person, the false convert, believes that based on these things and not on faith in Christ alone, should they be granted access to the kingdom. You might be thinking at this point of Jesus' description then of the final judgment In Matthew chapter 24, where all the people are divided before the judgment throne of Christ as a shepherd divides sheep and goats. Right there, Jesus divides all those who come to him at the final judgment into two groups. The sheep on on his right hand, the goats on his left, into the sheep. He allows them entrance into the kingdom, into the goats. Uh, He he, uh, sends them off into eternal destruction. There, Jesus welcomes the sheep into heaven with commendation for their unknown ministry to Christ, for the visiting of the sick brother or the brother in prison, the giving a drink to one who is thirsty or clothing to the one who is naked. Jesus commends the sheep for their unknown ministry to Christ and their compassionate work to those in need. And the goats, he sends them off to destruction for their lack of those same works. And I hope you'll not be confused by what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 7 and in Matthew 24. In neither place is uh, a works-based righteousness at play. In neither place is Jesus saying, do good works so you can enter the kingdom. Do bad works you don't enter the kingdom. And Matthew chapter 7 and Matthew chapter 4 are not in competition or contradiction with one another. When we take a whole gospel approach to the view, to to the book of Matthew, and specifically to Matthew 7 and Matthew 24, taking the whole context of Matthew's gospel uh, in consideration, we must understand the sheep at the final judgment in Matthew 24 to be those who have borne fruit in keeping with faith in Christ and repentance from sin and Christ-like compassion to the needy as a result of that. And so again, it is full faith and trust in Christ for salvation that comes first. And only after that can we minister in his name. Only after that can we do the kinds of things that kingdom citizens do. The case of the self-deceived religious person is a particularly sad one. Because well-intentioned as they are, we see that ultimately, verse 23, their destination is destruction. Christ has stark words for these people at judgment. He says there, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In this statement, we find that what is true, the, the, we find what is the true indicator and cause of salvation, salvation from sin and entrance into the kingdom—is found in knowing and being known by Jesus Himself. The word that Jesus uses here when He says, "I never knew you," is the Greek word "gnosko." And in, in, this, in Greek, this word was used to communicate the idea of relational knowledge. Knowledge that is gained through the process of knowing a person, through direct personal experience, as a result of having an intentional and an ongoing relationship with that person. Jesus says, depart from me. I never had relationship with you. I never knew you through shared experience. You have never entered into a committed relationship with me. And you have no place here. To be known by Christ is to be in relationship with Christ. And in this context, faith and repentance for salvation are seen rightly as aspects of a trusting relationship with Jesus, wherein Christ and the believer are in an ongoing state of knowing and being known by one another. This is... In short term, what, what we use a short term word of just maturing in the faith this way. Walking with Christ. Living each day in full submission and dependence upon Christ and the Father for all that we need. The self-deceived person, though, substitutes religion for relationship. And in so doing, he sets himself on a path that leads to the same destruction as the false prophet. The same destruction as the denier of Christ. Christ himself calls them what they are, workers of lawlessness. Because they're doing the works of the kingdom without relationship with the king. They're not citizen king, kingdom citizens. And when confronted about this fact, the self-deceived person is likely to respond with all sorts of arguments for how they are not lawless, but rather how their morality exceeds so many others by comparison. I'm not that bad. I haven't killed anybody. Not a serial rapist. You know, I don't steal from folks. I've never, never robbed a store, never been arrested, never fought with anybody. I'm a good person. What do you mean I'm a worker of lawlessness? And this can be a, a moving argument to us if we re- react to it only emotionally, right? Generally speaking, we, we don't want to see a decent person, even a religious or a moral person, receive punishment from God. We just we don't want to see that. Somehow that seems unfair to us. The the problem in our thinking that way, however, and the the problem in the thinking of the self-deceived person, of the false convert, lies in what we are comparing our morality to. Most often we want to compare ourselves against ourselves. We compare our actions against those of other humans. I'm no Hitler. I'm no Mussolini. But scripture shows that the true standard of righteousness is not other men, but God himself. Romans 3.23, Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of Barack Obama. No, fall short of the glory of God. It is not man who is the standard, but God who is the standard of holiness. God who is the standard of righteousness. God who is the standard of all morality. And it is that standard of which we have all fallen short. We who know we are sinners, saved only by the grace of God to us through our faith in Jesus, ought to have our hearts broken by the fate of the self-deceived. It ought to break our hearts to know that there are people who think they are good with God and have no desire to really enter into a truly repentant and faith-filled relationship with Jesus Christ for salvation. But think that just by doing the things, checking the boxes, showing up on a certain day and giving you know, money when they ask for it, that they can be a citizen, a kingdom citizens, that they can enter into the kingdom of heaven. When Christ says to the contrary, no, on that day of judgment, he'll look at that person who thinks that their morality has merited their entrance into the kingdom, and he will say, depart from me. I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness. Just like the deceivers, the self-deceived are also seen throughout history. There are New Testament examples, and and maybe the most ready one is that in Acts chapter 19, we have these uh, sons of a priest uh, whose name was Siva, the seven sons of Siva, a good alliterative portion of scripture for pastors. And these seven sons of Siva were going about and, and, uh, through the countryside trying to, uh, uh, to, to expel to what is the word exercise. Thank you. Demons (laughs) from, from those who are demon possessed in the name of Jesus. And they approach one such possessed man. And they say in the name of Jesus, right? We command you to leave this man. And the demon says, Jesus, I know Paul. I know Peter. I know, but you, I have no knowledge of. And the dude who is possessed by this demon attacks these seven guys and beats them all the heck up. Right? So you have these seven sons of Siva proclaiming the name of Jesus to expel these demons, this demon from this guy. And the demon says, you got no authority because I know the person that you're calling on. But I also know that he doesn't know you. Okay. we also have examples in church history of these who are self-deceived. And um, in 2003, uh, there's a movie done, uh, a biopic on the life of Martin Luther, the great reformer, and, and the, the film is just called uh, Luther. And it's a great movie, a great film that, uh, that that portrays the events in the life of Martin Luther leading up to his nailing of the 95 Theses on the uh, the door of the church at Wittenberg. Uh, in protest to what the church was doing and in that film uh, early on uh, we see Luther who was a, a catholic monk at the time and he takes a trip to rome uh, part of uh, the at that time the, uh, the the catholic church's understanding of how you receive grace is partly in making a pilgrimage to rome and he gets to Rome, and, and while he's there, uh, there are all sorts of things he can do to receive uh, uh, to receive years off of purgatory, or to receive years off, to earn years off of purgatory uh, for loved ones. Okay, and it's it's a it's a it's a it's just a stunning scene in this film because here he is walking through the streets of Rome, and he approaches the steps to a basilica there several steps leading up, uh, stone steps. And at the bottom are, are several priests who are uh, taking money from those that are coming forward. And they're asking uh, of the, for the name and the relation of one who, uh, of a loved one who has, who has passed away. And Martin Luther says the name of his, his father. And a priest taps on a money box and Luther puts his money in. Another priest hands him a certificate of, uh, of, re- of release from purgatory for this person. And he says, he says, say in our father on every step and when you reach the top, your father will be released from purgatory. And so as the scene goes on, Martin Luther is there and he's, he's kneeling. This is not a, th- these steps are not quite so good for the illustration, but he's there and he's kneeling on these stone steps and he's saying in our Father and he gets up and he moves to the next one and they're literally like short steps like this and there's probably 50 of them and he makes his way up to the top uh, of these steps and, and as he gets there, he turns and he looks around and he sees all those hundreds of others that are flooding the steps. They're poor, they're destitute, they're hurting, they're longing, they need things, they need ministry, and here they are doing these prayers, praying this money to have people removed from purgatory, which which is not a place that's ever mentioned in scripture, right? Doing these works to receive grace for themselves, paying money to receive grace uh, at the foot of the steps. And so we see this picture of these self-deceived and even deceived people in that picture, and it's heartbreaking. And it's then that Luther begins to to come to his wits about uh, what we call the the doctrine of justification by faith alone. There are modern examples also of the self-deceived, of the false convert. We might call these one, the the moral unbeliever. I have friends that are not believers who are really good people. But they are really decent people who will not be saved and will not enter into kingdom apart from salvation through faith in Christ alone. We also think of the sacrificial giver, a person who gives a lot of money, gives a lot of time, volunteers efforts and energy and and other things uh, in the church and for the church in the name of Jesus, but who has no relationship with Christ. The sacrificial, sacrificial giver doing these things for himself to earn his way, to buy his way into heaven will not receive entrance. Another modern example, and this might step on some toes, and if it does, uh, I'm not sorry. I pray that you would just uh, uh, seek God in this. The faithful churchgoer. There are people who are sitting in, in evangelical, and Baptist churches across the nation today who have been sitting in those churches for decades who do not have a relationship of faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. And they are counting on their faithful church going to enter into the kingdom. And on that day, Christ will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness. That's why we preach the gospel here every single Sunday. That's why we magnify Christ here every single Sunday. Because on the off chance that there is one who has been in church their whole life, but has never trusted Jesus, we want everyone to know that today is the day of salvation for you. Knowing these things about the self-deceived, about the false converts, then we want to ask and try to answer the question, what do we look for in discerning who they are and how to respond? First, we look for moral living without love for the Messiah. Someone who looks good, who does all the right things, who who isn't a, a criminal or an unjust person, but who has no love for Christ, but who thinks that they'll enter into heaven because they haven't done anything that Ben. We look also, secondly, for Christian dialect without devotion. Christian dialect without devotion. By that, I mean people who know all the vocabulary of Christ, who know the vocabulary of the church, who might even have much scripture memorized and know where all kinds of things are in the Bible, but who in their life and, and through the fruits of the work, we see that there's actually really no love for Christ, no devotion to Jesus, no commitment uh, to him for salvation. Finally, thirdly, look for confidence without conviction. That is that person who is confident about their salvation, but who never experiences conviction about sin in their life. Right? Who, who, when coming to a small group, or when asked about what's going on in their life, never, ever has anything bad to report. Never, ever is convicted about their attitude of anger toward their spouse or their child. Never, ever is convicted about the things that they've thought or said to a coworker or even done in the past. A person who is confident about their salvation, but without any conviction for sin in their life that still needs to be repented of. So when looking for a a self-deceived person, for a false convert, use these things to, to, (laughs) to help you evaluate where people are at. Moral living without love for the Messiah. Christian dialect without devotion. Confidence without conviction. And use these same things in an ongoing way to evaluate yourself. Am I seeking to live morally without really loving Jesus? Or am I trying to love Jesus first and count on him to change me from the inside? Do I use a lot of Christian words but really have no devotion to Christ? Am I trying to show off my scripture memory or my my biblical literacy but without really time spent in the word, in prayer, counting on God to reveal himself to me? Am I confident about my salvation but unwilling to deal with or look at any sin that's in my life? We do well to ask these questions of other people, but we do even better to ask these questions of ourselves. And if you find that you are any one of these things and you are outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ, faith in him, his death on the cross for your salvation, his resurrection from the dead, and you are without repentance from your sin, you have not turned from your sin, but you're continuing to walk in it. Let today be the day that you first and for the first time and forevermore turn from your sin and turn to follow Christ in faith. Let today be that day. What does this mean for us in the church? What do we do moving forward with this knowledge? What, how does this change how we act? If I could put it succinctly, I would say this way. Know Christ first. Church, know Christ first. By experiential, relational knowledge with Him. By faith in His death and resurrection for your sins. Know Christ first. And then, and only then, minister in His name in keeping with Scripture. Know Christ first. And then when you know him, minister in his name. Because those are good things that we've been called to do, that we've been created to do in Christ Jesus. But those are also things that only Christ can do in us. Okay? And then finally, when you know a person, when you recognize a person who is religiously self-deceived, a false convert, who thinks they've been doing all the right things the right way forever, don't respond by having nothing to do with them. Rather, respond with truth-filled love and the whole gospel. Because these are people who are self-deceived and their fate is a sad one because they think it's one thing when in reality it's another. And so when our hearts are broken for them, we respond with, lo- with the loving gospel of Jesus Christ, the whole gospel that says salvation and entrance into the kingdom comes only through faith in Jesus and repentance from sin. Today you might find yourself uh, uh, hopefully encouraged by the words of of Christ uh, here. Encouraged and equipped to know what to look for in the lives of people you come into contact with. Hopefully you're encouraged now and better equipped to spot false teachers and false converts and to know how to rightly respond to them. I pray that that's been the case. But today maybe you are responding to God's word or what God is doing in you is, is not giving you confidence in your equipping to do these things, but he's giving you conviction of sin in your life. Maybe God is pointing out to you today that you don't know Christ the way that Christ says he must be known. I pray that today you would make you would make today the day of salvation for you. And in a moment, we're going to sing a song of response. And Pastor Bruce and I will be down here to receive you if you want to know more about how to know Christ or if you want to place faith in Christ for the first time today. And I pray that you would take the opportunity to do that. Maybe as a believer here, you just need to come to the altar this morning and spend some time in, in prayer that God would work in you the character of Christ in your life and mature you as a believer. So you might better serve His kingdom, work in His kingdom in keeping with Scripture and keeping with what Christ has called us to do. You want to do that in a better way, in a more faithful way today. Uh, I, I pray that you would take time to pray and ask God to help you do that this morning. And maybe... Your understanding or you you know now that there are people in your life, friends, family members, co-workers, who are not true believers but who are self-deceived. And I hope that your hearts would be broken for them this morning. And that in our time of response, that you would give that time as we're singing to prayer for those people who don't know Christ that you have influence with. You would pray for them by name. That you would ask God for opportunities to share the gospel. That you would pray that he would give you wisdom to see those opportunities and boldness and clarity to speak the gospel when those opportunities make themselves known. Let us be a people that, that are people of prayer and also people of compassion for the loss that we know and that we love. As we prepare our hearts to respond, let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning.